uh, encounter with God, although that's difficult to say because Moses is such an amazing figure in the Bible. So many, uh, so many incredible stories attached to his encounters with God and the way that God used them, but this is what we'll take a look at. So I'll read this scripture, Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, and then we'll consider that uh, together, uh, just a brief portion of working this out. So here's God's word in Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? And what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is the word of God. Father, would you see fit to visit us now with truth from your word? And may it sear uh, and be seared into the deepest part of our beings and May we be brought to praise and to walk with you uh, because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a pretty tall order trying to talk about Moses' life because so much of the Bible uh, really discusses it. We've looked at a couple of other people. Um, We looked at uh, Jacob, who occupied 12, 13 chapters of Genesis, and Joseph, about as many chapters. And now, When we consider Moses, if you open up the first five books of the Bible, he figures into each of them. Historically, he's written the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, so he's got his hand, so to speak, in Genesis. And then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all about his story. So five books of the Bible, a pretty big chunk. If you were to open it up and try to read through today, it would take, I presume, most of your day. And... 
Here is where it really begins in terms of his direct encounter with God. Really a life-changing encounter with God. Uh, scholars talk about Moses' life being divided into three sections. There's the first 40 years of his life, uh, and then the second and the third 40 years. And if you know Moses' story, it really is attached to Joseph that we saw last week. Because Joseph had been uh, given a place of prominence in Egypt, uh, only second to the Pharaoh. But after he dies in Genesis chapter 50, and then the Israelites begin having all kinds of kids and they flourish in the land and they're, uh, they're overtaking the land so it seems to the people who were in charge of Egypt and people forget about who Joseph was. They're only looking at the potential threat of these Israelites taking over. What if they rise up to arms and, and overtake us so they enslave them and they're oppressed. And one of the directives given, this happens right at the beginning of the book of Exodus, to the midwives of the Hebrews who are overseeing the birth process is to kill boys who are born. Let the girls live, but the boys have to be murdered. And as any mother could imagine, that's horrifying. And Moses' particular case, uh, mom uh, it man manages to give birth. In fact, the Hebrew midwives uh, talk about the vigor as Pharaoh comes to them because their conviction is we're not going to do this. And Moses is one who's born and then hidden and, and eventually when he can be hidden no longer. And you know this story, he's put into a basket and, and he goes down the Nile and Pharaoh's daughter, lo and behold, finds this basket. And this young boy who's in there and is moved to compassion says, I want to make him my son. Returned to mom for a time and then Moses then grows up. And if you look at the book of Acts, it talks about his education. There in Pharaoh's court, he was treated as one of Pharaoh's own children. So he had access to the best education and the best uh, food. So whatever fast food of the day, you know, he was door dashing constantly, whatever it is that he wanted to eat. And he had a, a wonderful life with all the privileges afforded to somebody who has remarkable wealth and access to all of these things. But his own people, his own people were being enslaved. And obviously Moses had a sense just by visually considering things that he was different than others because he identified with his people on the one hand and yet he was also in Pharaoh's family on the other and you know Jared was talking about who am I and that's a question that for Moses first 40 years he was wrestling with who am I ethnically I'm I'm I'm, I'm a Hebrew but I'm being raised like an Egyptian and he's really torn with this sense of who am I for 40 years, and you maybe know the story just even right before Exodus chapter 3. One day he sees some of his people mistreated by an Egyptian, and this rouses his anger, so he kills that man and hides him, hoping that he won't be discovered. And the next day he goes out, and he sees two Hebrews arguing, and he says, why are you arguing? And they say, well, who are you to judge us? We saw what you did. We know that you killed somebody. And this word gets around and Pharaoh finds out and he's angry with Moses. And so Moses, like other people we've already read, flees the scene. And he heads out, away. He's cast out of the family, away from his own people as well. And he's a man on the run. 
He's a sojourner now in a completely new space. And the next 40 years of his life then take place in the desert. And he kind of settles down like a family man. It's like he buys a van. He'd been running, riding around in the chariot, you know. It was maybe a Ford Mustang, 2006. And then now he's out watching sheep, getting married, having kids for the next 40 years of his life. First 40 and the second 40. And then this encounter in Exodus chapter 3 really is kind of triggers the next 40 years of his life. And it's kind of mind-blowing for me to consider a dude was 80 years old. When God shows up in this life-changing encounter and says, I've been grooming and preparing you for this moment in your life. And guess what? The next 40 years are going to be super hard. (laughs) They're going to be tough. But I am going to employ all this backstory for my purposes. Even your sense of identity. You don't know who you are? Isn't it remarkable that in this disclosure, God says, I am who I am? He doesn't have any identity confusion at all. He knows exactly who he is. And for those of you who know that name that we put together, Yahweh, from it, from the to be verb, when God says, God says, I am, it's, I I am the one who is and the one who was, I I am who I am, I will be who I will be, I am the self-existing one, the bush that's consuming itself but not burning is a picture of God's aseity, he does not need anybody else, he's completely Uh, self-existing he always has been he always will be I am who I am that's who sent you and Moses understandably feels kind of small in the midst of that when you have an encounter with a God who says I always have been I always will be I remember somebody from from my past a mentor of sorts talking about life in the dash and going to graveyards and looking at the birth date and then the, the day when the person was dead and just saying, how many years is it, and doing the calculation. You have time to live inside this dash. What about God? He always has been. He always will be. Does the time inside the dash matter? Yes. In fact, God infuses it with significance, and he does that here for Moses, the final 40 years of his life. Some of you know this quote from D.L. Moody, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody when he was with Pharaoh, 40 years learning he was nobody when he was wandering, and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody, the final 40 years of his life. And yet Moses, as we've already seen, struggles with who am I? And isn't this kind of something that we all struggle with quite a bit? And perhaps we figure it out at moments in life and everything seems like it's fine and then things just change and all of a sudden our sense of identity and and stability are taken away from us. It could be things not turning out like you want to, you know, failing uh, a test in school or losing a job or suffering a divorce or experiencing a pandemic. This is not what we had planned on, and it seems like all of a sudden now we're wondering, how do we process this information? Who are we? And he he struggles with perseverance in the face of ongoing challenges. If you know the last 40 years of his life, is as wonderful as we'll see uh, when when he uh, delivers the, the news to Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, you to tell me what to do and Moses says look I'm just telling you what God's told me there's plagues coming 
If you don't listen, ah, and they start coming. And the, the worst, the last, the, the, the death of the firstborn son. And finally, leave. And a parting of the, the Red Sea and all these miraculous things that God is doing, providing food from heaven. Wow, nonstop free food from heaven. And yet the people begin grumbling and complaining. And now it's a long journey, 40 years. And Moses is a remarkable leader, but he starts getting frustrated. These people who I have led, who I've given everything to, are complaining and grumbling. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? This is all we have in the pantry? How come we don't have any food? Nobody identify with complaining, a lack of gratitude, maybe, for all that you've invested. And for 40 years, he struggles with that too. In fact, he even struggles with trusting in God. Twice, we see a story repeated about water from the rock. And Moses had been told how to provide, and he did more than he was supposed to. And, and, and the author talks about trust in that passage where he's supposed to speak to the rock. And remember, he takes a, a stick and hits it. This is not what God had said. It seems to me he's taking things in, in, in his own hands that he was not supposed to because he can do a better job than God. Instead of trusting and speaking to the water and seeing uh, rock and water coming out. Moses, the man of God, who experienced, you know what, if you think, if I just saw a burning bush, I'd be a faithful person to the end and never complain. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? If God just literally wrote out in the sky, Mark, dude, I'm with you, you know, I am with you always, don't worry, you don't need to complain, trust in me, then I would. This happened to Moses. You know, Jesus talks about this later too. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. But Moses saw plenty. He still wrestled. And hopefully that's a word of encouragement to you. If you find yourself struggling, who am I? I can't go on any longer. I'm at the end of my rope. I cannot persevere in the face of ongoing challenges. And I got to take things into my own hands. Well, that was Moses. Even after his encounter with God. Now, like I said, there's a lot of space to cover in the life of Moses. But bringing us back to the text, I'm going to handle this just a little bit differently. And don't worry, that wasn't an introduction to three paragraphs and then a, a conclusion. But I want us to consider three aspects from here. Um, and, and the title is All That Is Sacred. All that is sacred. Last week we looked at Joseph's all-in trust. You know, what we meant was that his encounter with God all came in the midst of trusting God over a long period of time. And that his trust was all in. He's in, all, all in. Now, Moses here in his first uh, remarkable encounter with God that we see, realizes that, he sees that all is, everything is sacred. He's, he gets this message, all that is sacred. So let's, let's take a look at this. And what we're talking about here in this passage really is just three things. And the first thing to look at is sacred space in verse 5. As Moses is called over to the bush, he hears, Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. 
Moses has an encounter with sacred space. And by sacred, I mean holy, set apart, distinct, different. The, the place where he was going was sacred. And it was sacred not because that bush was in and of itself sacred or the ground was in and of itself sacred. What makes things sacred is the presence of God. God's presence in that bush and on that little plot of land made it sacred, made it holy. And that concept of being holy or distinct or separate or sacred is an important one in the Old Testament for sure. God was calling a group of people to himself, a nation that would be distinct, different, other. That's as old as Genesis. Back all the way pretty much at the beginning when God calls Abram and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a people out of you who are going to be a picture of what it means to walk with the holy God. You will be a distinct group of people. And now Moses experiences that here in this sacred space as well. It's distinct. It's separate. It's different. Because God is there. God is in the midst. And if you are familiar with the, the kind of storyline of the Pentateuch, the, the, the way it goes from here after after. Moses delivers these people. Uh, God says, I am going to have a place where I dwell again. It's, it's a tent. That it's a mobile tent. And well, actually, first it happens in the Shekinah glory, right? It's God gives a cloud and his presence is there and he's leading them. And then there's a tent and God's presence is there and Moses meets with God. Only Moses can go in there. It's sacred space. And then eventually, even just fast-forwarding more through history, when you end up in, in Jerusalem, there's a temple that's built. And that temple was sacred space, and it became more and more sacred the farther into the temple that you went, from the outer courts all the way into the very center, where God's presence was so palpable that only the high priest could go in once throughout the course of the entire year with all kinds of processes in order to become as pure as possible. And as my Old Testament professor argued, or from ancient historical documents, they used to put a bell on that person in case they heard the bell stop moving around because he was struck dead in the presence of God. He's so remarkably different and distinct. His holiness, just no wonder Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has a, a vision of God's glory, holy, 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 the only thing used to describe God three times, so distinct. And Isaiah says, I'm, uh, I'm a man of unclean lips because this God is so holy. He's so distinct. He's so different. His, I am who I am, the very presence of God, sacred space. And this is why when Jesus bursts onto the scene, it's so remarkable for example, in John chapter 1, when he shows up and he says, we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and the only. Moses brought all kinds of great things and, and the laws administered through him in Exodus chapter 20. But here is the one who came full of grace and truth and we have beheld his face. What does Moses say here? Or God say to Moses, you can't see me. But in the person of Christ, you have the perfect representation of God. He himself is completely distinct and separate. The Son of God who is holy unlike any other whatsoever. So that when he dies on the cross, you hear that the, the veil is torn in two. No more. 
Is there a veil separating God's people from his presence? Because Christ in his body has made a way to direct access to God. And then Jesus says, I'm giving you my spirit and I will be with you. Sacred space. Do you realize if you're a follower of God, if you're a follower of Christ and Christ's spirit dwells in you, you yourself are sacred space. You are holy. Be holy as I am holy. Your body is a temple to be used for God's glory. Instruments of righteousness are your hands and your legs, according to Paul. You are, in that sense, sacred space. You are God's people called together, the church. Because of what Christ himself has done, God with us and his spirit in you. So what I would suggest to you is an opportunity then to consider the way that worship and God's glory and holiness is everywhere. You as a, a follower of Christ, and this is where you, you can be distinctive, and if you're not somebody who's yet considering yourself a follower of Christ, what difference does it make? All of everything is sacred. All space is sacred. Your home is sacred because God is there with you. Your place of work is sacred. You're a student. Even your school is sacred space. I don't care where you go. You look at things differently, or at least you have the opportunity to, because God is there with you, and he has said, this is sacred space. So in a sense, everywhere is sacred space. There are opportunities everywhere. It completely changes the way that you look at life. And yet, at the same time, we understand that where two or three gathered, God is in their midst. That there is something, there are places where we seek God's face. So, as much as we say there are opportunities, sacred space everywhere, you also have to have a unique sacred space somewhere. You know, look at sacred space everywhere, but there is sacred space somewhere. I would consider this amidst four, you know, walls here, sacred space. We have called on God. We are listening to his word. We're singing his praises. This place is sacred, not because we slapped a name on it, but because God's people are here and he is in our midst. And that sacred space is something I would challenge you to find as well on your own. We talked about first things first last week. What about first 15 minutes of your day or the first slice you can possibly muster up setting aside as sacred space where you're meeting with God, you're in communication with him, you're praying to him, you're reading his word, you're, you're quiet before him, you're being still. Because I think that kind of sacred space fuels and allows us to see everything else in a completely different light. And Moses here, his first encounter with God, learns just a little bit about sacred space, and it's unpacked all throughout the rest of the scripture. So sacred space. Now the second thing that we see here is sacred life in verse 7. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. Fascinating. God's image of this burning bush 
Uh, and, and again, theologians would call it the aseity of God. It's not like he needs anybody else. He's completely self-sufficient. Yet he's moved in Trinitarian compassion toward a people to be in relationship. And then he's not just a distant God. When he sees suffering, he's moved to care. He sees his people suffering. He sees them enslaved. They're miserable. And he hears their cry. The God of the universe has an ear bent to his people. And he is moved to compassion. He's concerned about their suffering. They're hurting. And Moses here discovers that God cares about Life, life itself is sacred. The way we treat other people is a sacred issue. It's a holy issue. There is right and there is wrong. And God is calling it out. He hears his people suffering. Now, what's amazing to me, I was thinking about later in the book of Exodus when, God, when Moses re returned. Some people think Horeb and Sinai are the same. Uh, and I, I, would, I would be in that camp too. So Mount Sinai, just different words for the same mountain. What happens when he goes up to Mount Sinai? You Charlton Heston fans know what happened up there on the top of the mountain. Anybody 40 and over? He gets, he gets the, the Ten Commandments. And, you know, who knows? what That's fingers writing on the inscription. And yeah, I wonder if Moses is sitting there, like, reading it. Like, oh, wow, this is good. And he, yeah, this is great. This is good. Do not murder what? Do not murder. The God who says, look, this is what it means to walk before me to be distinct. And there it is, the law written in front of him. Did, had Moses murdered? Yes. He'd broken one of these commandments. I, I don't know what he was thinking. It doesn't say, but you know, wow. When we talk about the, the misery and the, and the suffering, and God's care for sacred life. We can think of it as bookends. All right, there's life at conception. Now, I believe the Bible teaches that life is sacred at conception. I knit you together in your mother's womb. Before I knew, you were knit together in your mother's womb. Before I was born, David reflects on the reality of, of God's making us in his image. And in fact, Moses would have authored that too, right? Let us make man in our image. You are made distinctively from all the rest of creation in the image of God. And because of that, your life is sacred. It's, it's holy. Whether you embrace God or not, there is a, a reality to your humanness that is a beautiful gift from God right at conception. And, and on the other end of the spectrum as well, uh, you know, some utilitarian ethicists would suggest that we have to do an economic equation for when we pull the plug on somebody's life. If there costs more money to, to, to society than the benefit they're contributing, then let's, let's just pull the plug. Because life is defined by how much economic balance we have. How much, we'll make, make sure that we're in the black at the end of the fiscal year. And in biblical uh, values seem to kick against that because what we value is life. Not only at the beginning, but also at the end. The dignity, the value, the worth, the significance. It's just a different measurement. Nobody's under the illusion we're going to live forever. But when we begin weighing, when does this end? 
It's just different when you say that life is sacred. Your measuring stick changes. Does it matter to believe this stuff? Absolutely. At the beginning of life and at the end. But what's compelling to me in this passage is this is talking about life in between. They've been born. They're suffering now. And God hears their cry. We need to champion life and see it as sacred from the beginning to the end and everything in between. God does here. I've seen the misery. I've heard them crying out. They're slaves and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I am going to do something about it. This is the sanctity of Human Life Sunday. That's for a lot of churches as well. A fitting time to consider how sacred life is at the beginning, at the end, and everything in between. Well, some of us have our ideas about the, the beginning and what that looks like and the end too. And I think a lot of us are trying to figure out the middle piece, uh, at least in the circles where I run. What does it look like to engage in justice, to care about life, to stand up for the oppressed? It's why I lean in heavily to things like the Mosaics community to say, I'm still trying to figure this out. I want to listen closely especially, at least for me, to those who have experienced this kind of oppression and misery. Because I have it in the same kind of way. I want to learn. I want to hear. And some of you took place in Undivided. I don't know how many of you did that. It was a Crossroads-sponsored event, so it was done better than anything we could ever conceive of doing. Um, and, and they've repackaged it recently, actually, and. And Chuck Mingo, who, who uh, African-American pastor of the, the Oakley site, who kind of felt God to uh, call him to lean into the racial reconciliation conversation from a biblical perspective, they've, they've become a, a separate thing from Crossroads. And this has become something national now. And it's been go, going to the prisons. And they've just uh, done something that is now in the marketplace, working undivided. And Winetta was part of the test group that was doing that. And soon they'll be uh, unveiling sort of the living undivided for churches and 501c3s. And they're going through this with the Milford police, believe it or not, soon as well, to talk about what does this look like? How do we have these conversations? How do we care about each other? And we need to have those and we need to pursue them. And we did the Imago Day conversations after Ferguson. Frankly, it was the hardest thing we've ever done as a church created the most conflict, most stress, and most desire for me never to do it again than I've ever had in my life. But if you'll recall, at the end of that, there was somebody who stood up and repented of sins weeping. A white man to his black brothers and sisters. Move to compassion. Life is sacred. And that's the beauty, isn't it? When we talk about a multi-ethnic church of influence, and by the way, Vera, and I say this all the time, reminds me, white isn't ethnicity, <laughs> right? I mean, we want to, to walk with this together and listen to each other, and uh, it doesn't make it easy, but it's beautiful because we understand that when we get together, it's sacred space, and that we're saying, you are sacred, and because you're sacred, I'm going to listen, and I'm going to learn, and I may still disagree, and I think we've done an okay job of that over, over the years, but it's, it's hard space to live in, but it's worth doing. 
And Moses here leans straight into that. He's going toward the suffering. He doesn't really want to, though. I mean, he's kind of saying, can you choose somebody different? I I don't know. I'm, I'm not that good at this. You know, who, who, who can I say sends me and later I'm not that eloquent and everything. And God says, no, I've chosen you. I'll give you the strength and I will be with you. Sacred space and sacred life. And last, just brief reflection, is sacred calling. In verses 4 and 10. When, when the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from the, within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And verse 10, now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses has a very clear calling, and it's quite striking here because it comes, it comes from God calling him by name, Moses, Moses. And Moses has a reply. When, when God calls, he says, here I am. We see this in other places in, in the Bible, too where God has spoken to somebody and, and called them by name, and, and, and then they reply, here I am. Now go, I'm sending you. When, 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 I, when I read this, it's like I'm not Moses. Um, God, I never heard anybody say, Mark, Mark, uh, I'm, I'm calling you. And yet, at the same time, when we open up the New Testament, we see Jesus does call us by name. He has his sheep that he's pursued and he woos you to himself. He uses the circumstances of your life, the thousands of moves from one location to the next, the encounters with the forces of nature, whether it's lightning striking you or fire blazing around you to remind you that your life is fragile. You're but a vapor. But there is an eternal God who's calling you now to serve him. There's much work to be done. And Moses hears that. Here I am, he responds. That's the response. You know, one of the Psalms we'll often read, 95, is today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And how does God speak? He speaks clearly through his word. That's why we gather to hear it communicated If it's rightly expounded, he is speaking through his word to you today. Do you see how sacred the space God has given you is? Whether it's where you work or your body itself, how sacred life is. And how sacred there is a calling, that God has placed a calling on your life. Something for you to do. And wouldn't it be great if that calling was something we could just write in and say, here's what I'd like you to call me to do, God. But that doesn't happen to Moses. He, he, it doesn't seem that when God calls, very specifically, Moses is like, all in, like Joseph was. I'm all in. I mean, he says, here I am. But then he says, here's what I've got you to do. He's like, oh, I don't know about that. But he, he does it. In, in obedience and in faith, he takes the next step. Imagine him turning back toward the land where he's fled. One step at a time. He's getting closer and closer. And he doesn't know what's happening next. And frankly, the next 40 years of his life are pretty miserable. And even more so, he gets right to the promised land. 120 years, 40 years wandering through the desert just to get these people across the river. And he dies before he ever gets there. That's not right. 
Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? You can see it. I can taste it. I smell it. This is what I've given my whole life to. You're not going to get to experience it. Moses' calling, like so many of ours, is to be faithful to what God had put in front of him to do. That's it, to be faithful. God has given him this. So how many of us, there might be a couple of us sitting here, and you guys who are 15, 17, 18, 20, or whatever, 25, get back to me when you're 80, whose life has gone exactly according to plan. That, that you've written it out, you've, you've put, put your wish list together for the spouse, the job, the location, the, you know, the house, the car, whatever. Get back to me. But with God, God with you, everything is sacred. Think about this. This is a very different perspective. If God has called you to be faithful wherever you are and said, that is, that's a sacred calling. Then even as a student who can't stand math or anything, you still, if you're, God is with you, that's a holy calling to be faithful to and do your best. Things don't go according to plan. And Moses, when he's looking at the last 40 years of life, he didn't know how long he's going to live. Going back there seemed like a very overwhelming task. But our call is to be faithful. And Jesus you know, reinforces this as well in, in parables. You are called to be a steward of what God has given you. You've, got, you've been given certain capacities and abilities and gifts and you're leveraging those with seeing sacred space and sacred life and sacred calling and God's going to take care of whatever results there are. You just be faithful in the moment to what God has called you to do. None of us knows what's going to happen next the rest of this day or tomorrow. But I do know that God is there. I do know that if I trust him, he's got this. I do know that even if I breathe my last in 10 minutes, God will still be here and he'll still be at work calling people to himself, perhaps even through my very last breath. And I want to give myself to that calling. Now, I would prefer not to spend 40 years of thinking I'm somebody, 40 years learning I'm nobody, and 40 years of actually figuring out God can use somebody like me. Right now, he calls us, if you hear his voice, to say, I will embrace the sacred calling that's right in front of me. Sacred space, sacred life, sacred calling. This is Moses' life-changing encounter with God. Joe and I have... Uh, we kind of made a prayer closet, you know, in, in the house that in many ways God gave to us a handful of years ago. Um, there is a closet with, you, know, you can actually walk into it. And we'd watched uh, the movie um, War Room, right, thank you. Gosh, I couldn't remember, but everybody else knew what it was. In, in part interest because there's a jump rope team that's involved there and the people who are on the team we know because they're attached to the team that our girls were on at one point as well. But the, you know, this, this idea, this story is all about this, this woman who's, who's just a, a prayer warrior and prays. And it kind of moved us to say, okay, let's create, let's actually designate some sacred space. Not everybody has 
enough space to do this, but it doesn't have to be much, and say, we're going to just make that a place where we pray. And we put up prayer cards there too. And I was looking at those prayer cards again too, and I was like, no, that one hasn't been answered yet. <laughs> that one hasn't been answered. That one kind of, whatever. And I, and I was just thinking about the call to perseverance, to see even that space again as sacred, and to, to continue praying, because it hasn't been 40 years yet that I've been doing that. Hasn't been 40 years I've been praying for those things. And I'll tell you what, I look forward to, in, in this, because two of them are related to this church too, and I'm not going to tell you what they are. This is between me and God and, and you. And, but I'll bring that card in here if and when that's ever answered. <laughs> and I'll say, this is it. So stick around long enough. Your ne next 40 years, you've got to be here <laughs> just to see if this happens. But when I was going through this text again, it encourages me again to see this as sacred space and then to persevere to the end. Because there is a place ahead, even when we breathe our last, where Canaan is a physical place, but it's a picture of heaven in many senses, in many senses, a land flowing with milk and honey, where God's presence is forever. And guess what? No longer we not get to see him face to face. We see his beauty in the face of Christ, but there's a time even when we, at the parousia, his return, when we see him face to face clearly. Now we see just a, a dim reflection in a mirror. Then we, we, we will see perfectly. And that's the hope of those people who are journeying to Canaan land. And Moses, I think, is experiencing that now. And we look forward to it as well. Father, I simply pray that this life of Moses would be instructive to us and on whatever level perhaps this resonates, maybe a measure of conviction. I know I experience that when I interact with these, uh, these realities in your word and uh, I get uncomfortable at times. I don't know what it means, but it seems like you work in that space too, sacred space in our own souls when there's disquiet not simply to speak a quick piece, but maybe to move us in a way to consider again what it means to walk well before your face, to value life as sacred, to value the calling you've put on our lives as sacred, and, and perhaps not to be so much like the people who complain, this isn't what I wanted, but more like the son whose spirit fills us, who says, this cup feels too much to bear but not my will be done, yours. May we see that as our calling, sacred. The lives that we lead is sacred, the space that we share is sacred for your glory and for the good of the world around us. We ask in Christ's name, amen.